So there's something about the life of the church that's just joyous. We were gathering before service today, and we were talking about uh, the, as the bronze returned from their two-week vacation and all of the, the pain that Chelsea's family has been going through at the loss of her father, and for them to come home and find a mountain of cards and gifts and flowers and all of the different things. So there's just something joyous about being in a local body, loving on one another in our community. It expresses joy and happiness. We can suffer together and bear one another's burdens, just as the New Testament tells us. We laugh rather easily around here because there's so much joy in our hearts. And that's, that's something that is not found in the world. It bubbles over. It comes out. We enjoy one another's company. We don't live in the terror or the fear of the future because we have our hope in Christ and in eternity. And so that's a, that's a different type of foundation as we talked the last two weeks about having a foundation of forgiveness and a future of forgiveness. But now we see this foundation that is solid because our joy is derived from and finds its strength in the eternal hope that we have. So we know that our lives are secure in the purposes of God, in the salvation of God. And so we know that we can find joy even in difficult times. We can find joy. And I've said this before as has Justin, don't confuse joy and happiness. So he takes care of us. He meets our needs. He provides for everything that we need. And so we live in this trust and we live in this hope and this confidence. And that confidence produces the joy of the Lord. But while we do experience joy, even in the midst of all the challenges that we face in the world, we are also a sober-minded people. We can move quickly into deep thought. We can move into our feelings. We even move pretty easily from celebration to confession. We oftentimes find ourselves, and I don't know if you're like me, but when you find yourself in a high level of celebration, you often say, man, I don't deserve this. There's this part of you that says you search yourself as a believer. We go from celebration to confession. One minute we're eager to praise the Lord and sing at the top of our voices the beautiful words of the hymns and the songs that we sing. And then the next minute we're, we're ready to confess sin, to uh, partake of the elements, to be reminded that it was a price tag on that joy. And so we are fortunate as a people particularly at Rockfish Valley Baptist, but as a people in, in, in the whole, in the Big C Church. The church is one of the only organizations where members meet regularly to acknowledge that they are sinners worthy of nothing but separation from God. And we gather to celebrate that we indeed will spend an eternity with God despite ourselves. So in this true church of Jesus Christ, there should be a sort of obsession with sin. 
It's not a popular conversation to have in today's world. We should actually be obsessed with sin as believers, the true church. My wife and I have been watching a television program right now documenting a, a, a true event that happened within the Mormon church. And throughout the, the show, they keep referring to the Mormon church as the true church of Jesus. And yet, everything that has been espoused in this, it's hard to be a preacher and watch a show with Mormonism in it because they talk about all their works and how their works are going to get them somewhere. So it's really hard for me to sit through a show like that and not yell at the, at the television as if I'm watching a football game and my team is not running the plays I think they should. So I listen to them talk about being the true church and everything is based on works. Everything is based on themselves and their righteousness. So ultimately, as the true church of Jesus Christ, we should have an obsession with sin and know that it is because of our sin that Christ went to the cross. And if we were able to save ourselves, there would have been no need for Him to die the death He died. If we could be righteous enough to be, stand before God on our own merits, then Christ died for nothing, as Paul said. So the argument has always been, if you talk too much about sin, you're going to scare people away. You're going to scare them away. I want to encourage people. I want to discourage people. I want to encourage them. We want to lift them up. We don't want to put them down. That has always been sort of the modern day argument in some of the newer church movements. I watched a service on television recently. Not all of it, just the opening. Couldn't get through the opening. So the, the church will remain unnamed and so will the speaker. But the first thing this gentleman said was, welcome to worship. We're going to worship the Lord together today. I was like, all right, cool. Get my worship on. Here we go. And the first words out of his mouth as he prayed was, Lord, we deny anything negative. We deny anything that takes our joy away from us. We reject all loss. We reject Anything that will steer, steal our dreams, our ambitions, our goals, and our desires. He went on and on with this sort of self-centered, we don't want anything bad to happen today. And we want everything we want. And we're going to lift this up to you and just have you stamp it. Yes. So I thought to myself, I... I'm not going to doubt their Christianity. That's not my place. I will assume, just from that opening, that their eldership and their leadership are very infantile and immature in their belief because a true believer should come and confess the negative. They should come and confess their weaknesses, their inabilities, their, their penchant for deception, we should come and we should confess our fallenness. We should fall before God and say, I am not worthy, you are. Rather than say, lift me up and make me feel great about myself and the things that I want. We should be constantly recycling our 
reminder that we have a tendency towards sin. So churches that talk about only positive and self, 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 they have a serious problem with contemplation and confession. We don't want to talk about sin. We just want to have everybody feel good. So I am thankful that we have a Bible-believing church that preaches the truth that some days I leave church invigorated and excited to take on an evangelical step in my life, and some Sundays I leave here with a heart of regret for the things that I sinned against my God. So the more mature a believer is, the more open his mouth is or her mouth is to the confession of sin. And I think this week we're going to see Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he said, woe is me. Now think about this. This is Isaiah. This is God's prophet to Israel. This is the, uh, what would Justin say? This is the goat, the greatest of all time of his time. And this is what he says about himself. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. He actually pronounces a curse on himself because of his own wretched sinfulness. In Paul, uh, Paul in Romans, he says in, in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's pointing us towards the power of God in our life. So these guys, the, the goats of the Old Testament and the New Testament, are saying, woe is me. He was the best. He was, he was the noblest Christian. Whenever the church gathers to worship on Sunday, particularly here, it should give us an opportunity to acknowledge that we are sinful, we are unworthy, and we can lift up praise. And every week we take communion together to be reminded of the cost of of our redemption. So that notion that we're supposed to come to church and, and tell God what He needs to do in our lives, that's a dangerous, I call it the ATM format. We come in, we punch a couple numbers, and God gives us what we put in the machine. So that notion is dangerous. So we come and we say, Lord, the things that I want may not be good enough for me. They may be completely the wrong thing for me. They may be earthly things. They are passing things. They're temporal. They're sinful even, maybe. And I want to walk in Your ways. I want to seek Your way. Thank You. I confess that this sin exists in me. Mold me into the image of Your Son. So as the church never worships more purely than confession. We can have the greatest worship band on the planet. We can take David Crowder and Mercy Me and merge them together with the Immaculate Choir and we can fill this stage with the greatest performance of music you've ever heard. And that won't make us a worshipful church. We need to be a church that never forgets that confession or a contrite heart, as our scripture said this morning, 
is what God is actually looking on and looking for. So, that was a long introduction. Psalm 51. It was actually longer than I had written. So, let's look at Psalm 51. We're going to read all 19 verses of Psalm 51. We're going to spend some time in them. And, if time allows, we'll... We might even break it into two weeks since I will be in the pulpit again next week as Justin will be uh, gone to memorialize his father-in-law. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin against you you only have i sinned we addressed this last week when we talked about when someone actually sins against you all sin is actually against god it's not against us it affects us but it's not against us and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence, and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors Your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sound aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in, tight sac in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's a lot. Everybody understands that David was a great worshiper. He was, he was a great worshiper. He wrote many psalms, dozens and dozens of psalms. And the psalm we read today, and we're going to dissect a little, we use the psalms to worship. And they are songs. That's why they're called the psalms. But David also understood the wretchedness of his own heart. He was a true worshiper who knew that while this one thing that gives God glory is us reminding Him 
that without Him, we would remain in our sinful status. Praise be to God. And David had plenty to confess. Amen? So he's not a spiritual novice here. He didn't write the psalm in some immature moment in his life. He wasn't. He was actually at the pinnacle of his life, at a very high point of divine blessing in his life when this psalm was written. He was a man after God's own heart, Scripture says. He was a man who hated iniquity and unrighteousness. He hated it in others, but he hated it most in himself. And so he's going to be the one to lead us in, in our confession this morning as we read through it. Its characteristics here are the true order of confession. And that's what it's about. He, he's broken and contrite in heart. He describes to us in verse 17 just how broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. His sin bothers him. Our sin should bother us. We shouldn't even have a lackadaisical approach to sin and, and, and take advantage of the grace of God, as Paul would say. Are you taking advantage of the grace of God? Do you sin just because you know God's going to forgive you? Our sin should break us. It should bear a mark of deep guilt and we should be prepared to lay it at God's feet. So now David had some problems, right? He, he has this big lingering sin. When you mention David, people think of a couple things. They think, think of the Psalms, and they think of Bathsheba. They think of the story of Bathsheba, and how he was in his castle, and he, his armies were out fighting, and he looks down on Bathsheba and he sees her in her taking her bath on the roof. And he looks on her and he wants her. Well, there's a couple things. This is a whole nother sermon. But this is a, a short little, uh, in my notes, a parenthesis. If David would have been where he was supposed to be, he wouldn't have do, done what he didn't what he wasn't supposed to do. Some people like to blame Bathsheba. Well, she's taking a bath on her roof. Everybody took a bath on their roof. David shouldn't have been where he was when he was there to see Bathsheba on the roof. He should have been in battle with his men. And so when we find ourselves in the wrong place, we end up doing the wrong thing. And that's not always the case. Because we can't say what is the wrong place just by the place. It has to do with where God tells us to be. So, he was a man with this great sin that lingered over top of him. He was a man who murdered a woman's husband in order for him to take his wife. And yet, this is someone whom God called a man after his own heart. Paul 
murdered Christians. Paul went out and oversaw the murder of Christians. We see in Scripture where when he was still Saul, the other scribes and Pharisees laid their robes at his feet as they stoned Stephen to death. He persecuted Christian families. Could you imagine that if after Paul's conversion and he went around, he's now the Apostle Paul? He's now preaching the Gospel everywhere. Could you imagine being in one of his congregations listening, listening to him preach when four, five years prior to that, he was lopping their arms off and taking their husbands and children into captivity. So now you can see where this confession falls on the heels of a, a conversation we've had for two weeks about forgiveness. So what a sad story that Bathsheba had, that David had, So, conveniently forgetting that sin is sin can really send you in the wrong place. David was so steeped in sin at the time of the Bathsheba situation that he held a military funeral for, with honors for the man he had just murdered. So now when we read Psalm 51, and he's years removed from this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Matt Chandler summed it up pretty well. He said, sin had made him dirty, and he wanted to be clean. Guilt had made him sick, and he wanted to be well. Disobedience had made him lonely, and he wanted to be reconciled. Rebellion had made him fearful, and he wanted a pardon. David was in a particularly difficult spot. A man who feels dirty, sick, isolated, afraid. The consequences of sin falling down on him. And out of that, he pours out a confession with the right perspective. I did wrong. There's, he doesn't say like Adam, that woman you gave me, she did this. He doesn't do what, what Eve did in the fall. The serpent deceived me. So that brings me to a couple things we see in this text today about sinners, about us. A true contrite heart, a true contrite sinner, number one, understands that they deserve judgment. They understand that. One, they own it. It's their sin. They sinned against God. They're not going to blame anyone else. Two, the sinner understands that they deserve judgment. He knew that his sin deserved judgment. Look at verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, I deserve your blameless judgment. I deserve your judgment. You are right to judge me for the sin that I've done. He's in the right posture. He's owning his sin and he understands that he deserves judgment for it. In Psalm 103.10, he says, He does not deal well with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. If we received what we should receive for our sins, we would all perish and be separate from God. But thankfully in Psalm 130, verse 3, if the Lord should mark our iniquity, who could stand? So he knows what he deserves. He understands he deserves judgment. He feels the weight of that. And humility forms from a contrite heart. When you're truly heartbroken and your sin bothers you, it creates in us humility. He deserves the wages of sin, which is death. So one, the sinner owns their sin. Two, they understand that they deserve judgment. And three, a sinner appeals only to mercy. A true repentant heart recognizes that they are appealing to mercy. According to Your loving kindness, be gracious to me. According to Your compassion. So He's pleading. The word loving kindness there in the Hebrew It means grace or mercy. So I can plead for nothing else. I can only ask for mercy. So what is that? It's undeserved favor. Undeserved consideration. Unmerited. There's nothing David did in order for God to say. He didn't say, hey, I I made it all right. I brought Uriah back from the dead. I gave him his wife back. He didn't try and make it right in order to merit the grace. He just says, I am relying fully and totally on the fact that you are full of loving kindness. But he also sort of says in verse 4, I understand if you judge me. So he understands. A sinner understands that it's their sin. They do deserve judgment. They can appeal only to mercy. We see throughout this psalm sort of those three standard words that we see for sin. Transgression. Iniquity. Sin. He uses all of them. Basically implying that this is a comprehensive problem. He's messed up his life. And he is overwhelmingly guilty in every definition. Which leads us to our fourth thing that we see. A sinner is genuinely guilty and takes full responsibility. Takes full responsibility. He's even saying, I don't blame you if you don't forgive me. You ever, you ever been, and most of us in here have, have kids, have you ever corrected your children and then they're mad at you because you're still upset with them. Well, you said you forgave me. Why are you still mad at me? 
or they get the consequence for their, you forgive them. I forgive you, son, but you're still not, whatever. You're still not playing video games for the weekend, or you're still not going to so-and-so's birthday party, or you're still not, there's still a consequence to your sin. I forgive you, but there's still a consequence. And then they get mad at, what? you forgave me, because they associate consequences and forgiveness as, and we said last week, don't confuse the fact that forgiveness does not negate the sin. It simply prevents the root of bitterness from growing up. David is recognizing that even in God. He's saying, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now he's not saying my mom did something wrong and she had me out of wedlock. That's not what he's saying. He's basically reminding himself that from the foundation of the world, sin entered at the fall and we were all born sinners. And he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's actually a reference to the blood of Christ being applied to us for our atonement. Hyssop was what they would use. A hyssop branch is what they would use to, to, to spread the blood of the sacrifices. He's saying, I recognize that it's going to take the blood ultimately of Jesus for me to be found blameless. So we are sinners. We are guilty. We need grace. We are fully accepting responsibility. He says, I brought forth iniquity. He's not using it as an excuse. He's not saying, well, because I'm a sinner, I'm just going to keep on sinning. He's saying, let me hear joy and gladness. I want to be freed from this. I want to keep confessing this so that I will get tired of confessing this and I will stop sinning. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. And he says this, let the bones, this is verse 8, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. How many of you have ever been able to look back on your life and go, man, I'm glad my parents were strict on me on this particular thing. I grew up in a household, my parents were married 60 years, and my father passed away a couple years ago, but, uh, you know, man, I thought my parents were the strictest, hardest, you know, meanest. I look back and I go, man, am I so glad that they broke that bone. Let that broken bone rejoice. Man, I'm so glad they, they destroyed my social life when I was in high school and prevented me from doing some things that would have made my life even more difficult or possibly even ended it. And, and David is saying, and he's likely referencing the Bathsheba incident, let me find joy in confessing my sin to you, God. Let these broken bones, these, these, these disciplines, and these consequences of sin, let them spring forth joy and gladness in me. 
So, lastly, sinners recognize His power and willingness to forgive. His power and His willingness. Because sometimes people have a willingness to forgive, but not the power to do that. They don't have the, they don't, so for instance, in our legal system, there are plenty of people out in front of the court holding signs, free this person, free this person. They have forgiven them. But the court says, that, so they have forgiven them, but they don't have the power, so they have the willingness, but they don't have the power. We as sinners, we come to God who is not only willing to forgive us, but He has the power to. He takes that hyssop shrub and He applies the blood of Christ. So when He looks on us, He sees the sinless blood of His Son. So a sinner knows that God has the willingness and the power to forgive sin. God desires for this to take place. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. He knows God can't look on sin. He had to turn away. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities with the, the hyssop branch. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. And this speaks to the effect of confession of sin. What happens when we rightly confess sin? When we rightly address sin in our lives, what happens? We get a clean heart and a renewed spirit. And that's why I said some, some weeks I walk out of here and I am refreshed and ready to take on the challenges. I'm ready to go back and revisit some of those people I had difficult gospel conversations with throughout the week. And I'm all fired up and ready. Renewed my spirit within me. And some weeks I leave here because I'm still holding on to a sin I don't want to admit it's, is my fault. I don't want to admit that it's me that's the problem. And I leave here still rattled. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's, re- he's being reminded that God is a God that saves in the whole. So that the sin doesn't mean that we have to walk the aisle again and get baptized again. We have to go through that whole process again. Nope. He's saying, I know that you're not going to leave my presence. I know that you're not going to take your Holy Spirit from me. I know that your salvation is set. God is by nature a forgiving God, and so He understands that sin has to be dealt with. So He comes to verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. Cast me not from your presence. He even shows that He's being reminded that the Holy Spirit is, as 2 Corinthians says, the engagement ring. It is the guarantee. 
It is the promissory note of Jesus. And so, hear me, your theology doesn't have to be perfect for God's to be. Jesus wants to forgive because He has the willingness and the power to do that. So I think this week we're going to stop here at verse 11 and verse 12. And next week we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. We're going to look at 18 and 19. And we're going to see a couple things. That confession of sin, and, and, and again, we, 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 we named off all of the things that, that, that the sinner's stance needs to be in in order for it to be actual true confession. So then next week we're going to be able to see that there is action and there is others involved in confession. There is action and there is others that are involved when we confess our sin rightly and correctly and fully to a God who is willing and powerful enough to forgive. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I thank You, Lord, for the opportunity Lord, remind us, remind us throughout this week, perhaps, Lord, you are already with your Holy Spirit sweeping out the corners of the heart. You're already bringing to thought in the children of God assembled in this room. You're rattling their cages a bit, reminding them of a sin that they have been reluctant to confess to you in its true form of confession. Maybe they're not willing to actually own it. Maybe they're not willing to understand that they even deserve judgment for it. Maybe they are trying to justify a sin. Maybe they're not recognizing your willingness and your power to forgive that sin. So God, I just pray that you would rattle the cages and the hearts of your people, myself included. That as we come to the table now for communion, that we would have a restored joy. That you would set us on a new course. That we would be reminded of the penalty for sin that you paid on our behalf. And Lord, may we confess with a with a contrite heart, those sins that have caused us pause. Maybe our sin is causing us to be lackadaisical in our walk with You. Maybe it is causing us to further step away from You. Our desire to be in Your Word or around Your people is starting to fade. And would You stir our hearts that we would confess our sin. God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restore to me the joy of the Lord. We thank You, Lord, and we love You. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.